today our, our focus in particular will be on what we're calling the battle for the Bible. There's actually a book titled this, written in the mid-20th century by an author named Harold Linzel, The Battle for the Bible. Uh, but this is what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, when we think about the core convictions that we have been highlighting in our series, really the big three, and these three really define historic and biblical orthodoxy when we think of the truths that Christians hold dear, it would be an understanding of the word of God as our highest authority. It would be an understanding of the work of God in salvation as that which Christ accomplished on our behalf, that we are saved not on the basis of our own works, but entirely on the basis of his work on our behalf. And then the worship of God, the reality that we live for the glory of God and we want God to be glorified in everything. Uh, it was earlier this month uh, that we talked about the Reformation and we were noting the solas of the Reformation, the five sort of summary doctrines of Reformation theology, sola scriptura, Scripture alone is represented in that first one, that Scripture is our highest authority. Sola gratia, sola fide, and solus Christus mean that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's represented in that second core conviction. And then soli deo gloria, that we live for the glory of God alone, is represented in that third core conviction. And from the Reformation moving forward, we talked about the Puritans and we talked about the Scottish Covenanters. We talked about the pilgrims who came across to America. And then we were talking about the Great Awakening with guys like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. And then two weeks ago, we talked about the modern missions movement as men like William Carey and Adoniram Judson and Hudson Taylor and C.T. Studd and others took the gospel of grace to places all around the world in order to share the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. Today we're going to back up to that time period, we're actually just slightly before it, and move all the way forward to the present, and our focus is going to be specifically on the Word of God as the authority, because it was the Word of God specifically that came under attack in the period known as the Age of the Enlightenment, and we're going to talk about that more just in here in a little bit. Um, and then we're going to try and tie everything together and put a little bit of a bow on it, and then we'll look forward to getting back to the book of James. Uh, actually, I'm excited about returning to the book of James. The book of James was, we believe, the first epistle written in terms of the chronological order of the books of the New Testament, James wrote his epistle before any of the other books of the New Testament were written, which means we're going to be going from the end of church history all the way back to the beginning of church history. So uh, I'm excited about Pastor Harry taking us through that. Okay, we're going to start with the Age of Enlightenment. And this is really important to understand, not just from a church history perspective, but from the perspective of even the flow of the history of Western civilization. And because we're teaching this class in a context in which we're part of a Western civilization, that's why our focus is on this aspect of church history. <clears throat> if I was teaching this class in another part of the world, uh, this final lecture might look a little different depending on which region of the world we were talking about the history of the church in. But for us in America... We are the product of Western civilization, which means the Age of Enlightenment becomes a very important part of the history of Western civilization, also the history of American or Western Christianity. Uh, in order to understand the Enlightenment, we need to understand a couple of key people. Uh, the first would be Rene Descartes. Uh, it looks like Descartes, but that's, I'm told, not how you pronounce it. So Rene Descartes. Uh, who is considered the father of rationalism. Descartes came up with the famous bumper sticker or internet meme, I think, therefore I am, uh, which was more than just a one-sentence kind of cliche. 
It actually represented a radical new way of thinking about the world, which was to say that human reason became the starting point and the authority. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But the idea of your existence, the I am part of that statement, being explained from a starting point and on the basis of your thinking, I think, therefore, I am, rationalism or the rise of human reason was the result. And uh, Descartes expressed this philosophical standpoint in a book called A Discourse on the Method. Uh, But you can see there from the dates of his life that he lived at the beginning of the 17th century, which is when these ideas began to uh, become popular. So the early to mid 1600s. That rationalism was accompanied by another way of viewing the world, a philosophical construct or an epistemological construct called, uh, called empiricism. Empiricism is what we call the scientific method. And Sir Francis Bacon is considered the father of the scientific method, the father of empiricism. John Locke, who comes a generation later, is one who popularizes this view. But it is a way of saying we understand the world by observation and experimentation. And of course, you're all familiar with this because you're all products of Western civilization. So to you, you may not know the name Descartes and Bacon and Locke, but to you, this is all sounds very normal that we would view the world through our ability to understand, that's reason or ration, and through science, that's observation and experimentation. So this is reason and science, rationalism and empiricism. And so starting in the 17th and 18th centuries, Western civilization goes through a massive philosophical shift called the Age of Enlightenment, where the fundamental way in which people view the world alters and reason and science become the touchstone principles of the way that Western civilization thinks about reality. So I want to represent this in uh, just, again, sort of a graphical way here. Prior to the Enlightenment... Prior to the Reformation in medieval Europe, the way that people thought about the world in terms of their authority and their final court of appeal. So when you think about reality, what's your starting point and what's the authority that you appeal to, right? So prior to the Reformation, the starting point for how people thought about the world and uh, a court of appeal to which they ultimately... um, took things in terms of the determining factor, their touchstone principle, it would have been religious tradition and the church, the Roman Catholic church. And the way that people actually tried to live was in keeping with the sacramental system, which is why I have there what's called sacramental synergism. Synergism is the idea of two working together. So salvation was the idea that, or justification in the Roman Catholic mindset, is God does part of it, but I do a lot of it myself. I have to work to try and earn heaven And I do that through the sacramental system. And this is all based on what the church tells me. And the church is telling me what it's telling me based on religious tradition. That's the way people viewed the world. When the Reformation came along, the focus shifted for the Protestant reformers to saying, no, religious tradition is not our highest court of appeal. And it's not our starting point. Rather, the Bible is our starting point. This is, again, sola scriptura, the authority of Scripture. For the Reformers, Scripture is the starting point, and Scripture is the final court of appeal. So when you're thinking about reality, what defines reality? Well, the Bible defines reality because God defines reality, and the Bible is his word. So how do you live out the Christian life? You live out the Christian life by embracing the gospel of grace and by seeking to live for the glory of God. And that's why I put sola fide, which again means by faith alone, and soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. These become the way in which Protestant 
evangelicals seek to live out reality. But all of that is about to be challenged, and it's about to be challenged by this enlightenment way of thinking. Uh, It's important to state that the philosophers and scientists who kind of got everything started were Christians, but it doesn't take long for this emphasis on reason and science to begin to challenge the authority of Scripture and the way in which people thought during the Reformation and beforehand. So with the Enlightenment, we have the rise of rationalism and empiricism, which again is reason and science. And as people embrace these as their starting point, their authority for how they view the world, they begin to question whether or not the Bible is even necessary. If we can understand reality without the Bible, we understand reality because we use observation and experimentation to solve all of the problems that we have. And uh, we use our own minds to reason through things, the wisdom of man. Then people begin to reject biblical truth. And uh, so you can see um, reason and science become, again, the starting point. And uh, the, the result of this, the way that people think about reality is in terms of naturalism and... Uh, modernism. So modernism as a philosophical construct is the idea that the world itself, not just the world, but the universe is essentially one giant machine. And through science, you can understand how the universe works and you can unlock all the mysteries of the universe. And then everything we need to know will be able to discover through science and reason. That's modernism. Eventually, postmodernism recognizes that we can't discover everything, but... uh, doesn't really go back to theism. It, uh, it sort of exists in this nihilistic depression. But in any case, um, well, I should before I show that final slide or final box, I should say this: um, people in 17th and 18th and 19th century Europe, as they're embracing and absorbing this massive philosophical shift that's taking place they realize that although science and reason sound really good, uh, the reality is that it's kind of clinical, right? You, science and reason, you picture either a philosopher or somebody in a lab coat. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. So even though rationalism and empiricism offer a way of understanding reality, uh, it doesn't really give a lot of meaning to life. And so another movement arises around this same time Uh, in some sense in response to rationalism, but really in coordination with rationalism called romanticism, uh, similar to existentialism. And uh, romanticism says, okay, well, if science and reason can explain reality, romanticism gives me the answer to the question, well, why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? And according to the romantics, The purpose of life is to enjoy music and art and beauty and aesthetics. It's the pursuit of happiness through um, the arts and through the pursuit of your own pleasure. So it's hedonism and uh, and really a form of subjectivism. Um, I put humanism there as well because it was a recovery of the arts. Now, why is this important? Because this is still, even though we're now in a postmodern era, these final two boxes on the right represent the way that Western society still thinks about the world. In fact, there was one historian I heard who said that people in Western society are born into rationalism and raised in romanticism, which was his way of saying that people today are born into a world where they are told that everything you need to know about the world is explainable through science and reason, and the goal of your life is to pursue your own happiness, your own fulfillment, to be whatever you want to be, to find your dreams. 
Okay, that is the world in which we live. So when you're encountering people out there in uh, society who are unbelievers, their authority for how they view the world, usually, especially if they claim to be atheists, is some reference to reason and science. And the reason that they get up every morning is to pursue their own happiness. That's a massive shift from where we were during the Reformation, where if you had asked one of the reformers, what's your authority? It's the Bible. And why do you get up every morning? Well, it's to glorify God. And in fact, to show you from a historical standpoint, sort of the, the distinction, in the 17th century, uh, the mid-1600s, the mid-1640s, Uh, The Westminster Assembly, we talked about the Westminster Assembly, this would have been a couple of lessons ago, met together. This was a group of Puritans in England who got together, and in the Westminster Catechism, the the shorter catechism, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So that Puritan perspective represents this reformed, evangelical, Christian way of viewing the world. That the goal of your life is to glorify God and to find your satisfaction in him. It was just over a hundred years later that the founders of the United States of America, most of whom were enlightenment rationalists, there were some Christians, but most of our founding fathers were not actually Christians. They were deists. They were enlightenment rationalists. And and what do they put into our founding uh, documents? They put into our founding documents that every citizen has the right to pursue his own happiness. The pursuit of happiness guaranteed by the founding documents of our own nation represent a romantic shift in the way that people think about what the purpose of life is. And uh, just one more comment on this. As those who would resonate with the second box up there, because we are um, of the spiritual line of the reformers and the reformation, because their convictions are our convictions, Uh, As those who are Bible-believing Christians, this is not to say that we don't appreciate things like the arts or science and reason or even religious tradition. We wouldn't be talking about church history if we didn't have some appreciation for things being passed down through the ages. The point is that as Bible-believing Christians, the Bible is our starting point and the Bible is our authority over those other things. So we submit religious tradition to the authority of the Bible. We submit reason and science to the authority of the the Bible. And we submit the pursuit of our own satisfaction to the authority of the Bible, recognizing that we can never find satisfaction apart from the God who created us. Even as the church father Augustine said, we are restless until we find our rest in you, O Lord. But I, I, want, I know this is a simplified way of thinking about Western civilization, but I want you to understand that in the 17th and 18th centuries, a major shift takes place and the elite of Western society no longer believe the Bible because they have replaced it with reason, human reason, science, and the pursuit of happiness through recreation and the arts. That's a very significant shift. Uh, That shift intersects with church history in a profoundly negative way in the life of a man named Friedrich Schleiermacher, which that's just a fun last name to say a few times. Um, Ironically enough, Schleier in German means veil and Macher means maker. So Schleiermacher is a veil maker which is ironic because Friedrich Schleiermacher actually does have a very negative influence on subsequent generations of Christians. So in that sense, the name is somewhat almost prophetic because Friedrich Schleiermacher is the the father of modern liberal theology. 
Now, when we talk about liberal theology, I'm going to explain that. We're not talking about political liberalism. We are talking about theological liberalism, which is different. And let me explain what that is and tell you a little bit about Friedrich Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher grew up in Germany, modern-day Germany, and his father was a Lutheran chaplain. So he grew up essentially in the, in the house of a minister. But almost like uh, stories that you hear today, even though he grew up in a Christian household, when he went off to university, at the university that he attended, he began to encounter the attacks of the skeptics who, again, these rationalists, who said that the Bible was not true, but instead was full of error. And Schleiermacher, being young and impressionable, was, again, not a true believer, but he experienced what he felt like was a shipwreck of his faith. And he eventually wrote this very heartbreaking letter to his dad where he confesses the fact that he no longer believes that the Bible is true, no longer believes that Jesus died as a substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. He can't believe that stuff anymore because the the weight of the evidence from the rationalists and the scientists is just overwhelming against his Christian upbringing. That's Schleiermacher's perspective. And again, you, I'm sure I've heard stories of kids who grew up in Christian homes, go to a secular university and abandon the faith because they feel like they're overwhelmed by the attack of the skeptics. In Schleiermacher's case, however, he didn't want to, in fact, let me go back a slide. So, Schleiermacher grew up in a house where he was taught this. When he goes to school, he gets attacked by this, (laughs) the rationalism and empiricism. But Schleiermacher doesn't want to give up the label Christian. He still wants to be sort of associated with Christianity. So what do you do if you want to be a Christian, but you don't believe the Bible's true anymore? Well, you have to find some other basis for your Christianity. And for Schleiermacher, he found the basis for his Christianity in Romanticism. Because he said, my Christianity is based on a feeling of being dependent on God. So it was about subjective feelings rather than objective truth. And his argument was that subjective feelings are outside of the reach of science and reason, and therefore they are immune from the attack of rationalism and empiricism, the skeptics. But in essence, what Schleiermacher did, and the reason he's considered the father of modern liberal theology, is he invented for the first time in church history a category in which people could claim to be Christians and yet not believe the Bible. And ever since, there's been entire groups of people who call themselves Christians, but they don't believe the Bible is actually true. That's liberalism. That's liberal Christianity, liberal theology. So when people say they're Christians, progressive or liberal Christians, what they mean by that is they want to retain the title Christian, but they don't actually believe that the Bible is true. That had never happened before in church history, ever. (laughs) Christians believe the Bible. Um, If you don't believe the Bible, you're not a Christian. It just was that simple until Schleiermacher created a new category called liberalism. Um, And Schleiermacher wasn't the only one. There were many uh, German higher critics, skeptics, liberals, and others. In fact, uh, it would be a few generations later that another German theologian named Albrecht Ritschel would create a category of Christianity that wasn't based on 
feelings of dependence on God, but rather was based on social action and social justice. And that uh, came into America in the early 20th century called the social gospel. And it was the idea that you're a Christian because of the good things you do in society. Again, not because you believe the Bible. In fact, those who championed the social gospel in the early 20th century did not believe that the Bible was inerrant or fully true. Um, Instead, they claimed to be Christians on the basis of doing good things for people in society. So that's a very important shift that takes place uh, with Schleiermacher in the 19th century and then here in the United States in the early 20th century. Now, defending the truth against that kind of attack was... Um, you know, Bible-believing Christians of every denomination, there was one particular group, the Princeton theologians. Princeton Seminary started in the early 19th century as a Presbyterian school. At this time in the United States, there were three major denominations. Those denominations were the Presbyterians, which came out of the Puritan uh, movement in you know, going back to the pilgrims, and then the Baptists and the Methodists. So those were the three major denominations. And within those denominations in the 19th century, they were all controlled by and consisted of people who believe the Bible is true. Um, By the time we get to the 20th century, there will be a battle for those denominations between Bible-believing Christians and liberal Christians. Again, liberals claim to be Christian, but they don't believe the Bible. Let me talk just a little bit about the Princeton theologians, Charles Hodge, his son, Archibald Alexander Hodge, and then uh, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. You can see why people abbreviate some of those initials. Um, But uh, B.B. Warfield, Uh, these men at Princeton in the mid-19th century represented at the highest level of academics the Reformation conviction that the Bible is true and the willingness to stand for that truth against an increasing wave of hostility from the skeptics, the critics, and the liberals, those who would seek to undermine the authority of scripture. In fact, Charles Hodge wrote one of the first systematic theologies in English. Prior to that, seminary students had taken their theology in Latin. So we're grateful to Hodge for giving us an English version of theology. Uh, B.B. Warfield is a very well-known name. I do have a quote here from Warfield that I wanted to read you uh, just because, or I'll let you read it, but Uh, Warfield, just in this particular quote, emphasizes the fact that the church has always understood the Bible to be the true word of God. And because it comes from God, it is infallible. That means it doesn't fail. And it is totally trustworthy in everything that it reveals. Uh, For the reformers, this was a very simple and clear connection. Scripture is authored by God. God cannot lie. God is a God of truth. God never fails. God knows everything. And so what God says is therefore reflective of his character, which means it's perfect and true and enduring in every category to which it speaks. And that, of course, was attacked by liberals who insisted that there were major, major categories in which the Bible contained errors. So we're grateful for the Princeton theologians who represent sort of that first line of defense at the highest possible level against the critics, the skeptics, and the liberals coming across from Europe and beginning to take root in the United States. Uh, The Princeton theologians were really representative of uh, an entire movement of Bible-believing Christians in the United States. Um, I mentioned already that when the U.S. was founded in the late 18th century, 
that the founding fathers, most of them were not actually Christians. They were deists and they were enlightenment rationalists. And that is true. However, towards the end of the 18th century and in the early 19th century, so from about 1798 up to about 1830, there was a major revival in the United States. It's called the Second Great Awakening. And the result of the Second Great Awakening was that American culture was highly influenced by evangelical Bible-believing Christianity. I would argue that the reason that America has sort of a self-conscious awareness of being a Christian nation is because of the impact of the Second Great Awakening in the, again, early 19th century. And as a result of that, American culture just sort of kind of assumed almost a nominal, um, a nominal Christianity. But as... Enlightenment thinking from Europe began to influence 19th century American thought. There started to be a shift even in American culture. And those who were truly Bible-believing Christians went from sort of being representing the mainstay of American society to being uh, pushed to the fringe. So as the attack is coming, uh, those who are willing to defend the Bible become known as fundamentalists. And we'll talk a little bit about that term here in just a moment. Uh, In the 19th and really late 19th century and into the early 20th century, some of the most well-known figures in American culture were evangelists. Evangelists like D.L. Moody, who is well-known, Uh, started Moody Bible Institute. Uh, C.I. Schofield, who produced a Bible with reference notes called the Schofield Reference Bible. And then you have Billy Sunday, who was, um, when you think about the word fundamentalist, Billy Sunday was everything you think about because he preached not only against real sin, he also preached against social sins. Um, And uh, was a former professional baseball player turned evangelist. But these individuals just kind of represent the influence that uh, Christianity had had in the 19th century, which then started to come under attack. Um, So as modernism, which again is just another name for this viewpoint that science and reason are all that we need. As modernism becomes more popular in the United States in the late 19th and early 20th century, fundamentalists find themselves uh, having to band together in order to defend the fundamentals of the faith. In fact, in 1910, let me go back to that In 1910, there was a group of Presbyterian churches that put together a document in which they articulated five key points of doctrine that they were defending. And the reason they identified these five key areas of doctrine is because these were the five key areas that liberalism was specifically attacking. And you can see there, it is the authority and inerrancy of scripture because that was liberalism's first attack. Which actually, when you think about it, even going back to Genesis chapter 3, what was the first thing that Satan attacked? He attacked the word of God, right? Has God really said? So from the very beginning, Satan has questioned the authenticity and veracity of the word of God. And so it's no surprise that that continues to be Satan's attack. And then Beyond that, because within uh, a naturalistic worldview, supernaturalism, supernatural events are excluded as being impossible. So science doesn't allow for miracles. And so you have modernism and liberalism attacking anything supernatural. So the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the idea that God became man, they attack that. The veracity of Jesus' miracles, the substitutionary atonement of Christ's death, that he died to pay for your sins, and the physical resurrection of Christ from the grave. These were the primary points of attack 
that liberalism denied and therefore the primary rallying points that fundamentalism affirmed. These become known then as the five fundamentals, the fundamentals of the faith. And I know we have a curriculum here called the fundamentals of the faith, but the original five fundamentals were these five, that the Bible is the word of God, that Jesus is God, that Jesus performed true miracles, that he died on the cross as a substitutionary atonement for sin, and that he rose victorious from the grave. And if you believe those things, and I know that you do, then you are a fundamentalist, which I realize that today sounds almost like a pejorative term because the media has turned it into a pejorative term. But in its original usage, the fundamentalists, fundamentalism referred to those who believe the fundamentals of the faith and are willing to contend earnestly for those fundamental doctrines. Uh, In fact, it was in 1920 that a newspaper reporter named Curtis Lee Laws coined the term fundamentalist, and he coined the term to refer to Christians who believe the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Uh, Today, the term fundamentalist has been, uh, it's been redefined almost to mean extremist, and then it's been applied to other religious groups, which is crazy to me because I'm like fundamentalism, a fundamentalist is a Christian who believes the Bible. So you cannot have a Muslim fundamentalist. That is impossible. But in any case, not going to argue with the news. So fundamentalism is the word that gets used to define Bible-believing Christians at the beginning of the 20th century, Bible-believing Christians who are going to stand up to this attack against the central cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. And so then in the 1920s and 30s, we have what is called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And that controversy takes place in those major denominations. So in the Baptist denominations, fight or or a battle for control of the denomination takes place between liberals and fundamentalists. Same thing in Methodism. Same thing in Presbyterian circles. Uh, The result of all of this is that eventually the Bible-believing Christians lose that battle. They lose control of the mainline denominations, which is why if you were to go to a typical Methodist church today, or you were to go to a mainline Presbyterian church or an American Baptist church, you would go into a church where the Bible is not being taught because the people who are there call themselves Christians, but they don't believe the Bible is true because liberals gained control of the mainline denominations. Uh, The only real exception to that is the Southern Baptist denomination, where the Southern Baptist conservative, uh, theologically conservative, Bible-believing Christians were able to retain control of that denomination. Uh, In the mid-1920s, there was also an important court case called the Scopes Monkey Trial, where a biology teacher in Tennessee named John Scopes taught evolution in the classroom, which was illegal in Tennessee in 1925 to do. And he was fined for doing that. The ACLU came along and said, hey, we'll defend you in court. A guy named Clarence Darrow was his uh, attorney. Another guy named William Jennings Bryan, which is a name you maybe have heard before, was the prosecutor. And there was a big trial about whether or not this biology teacher should be allowed to teach evolution. Uh, the William Jennings Bryan, representing the fundamentalists, uh, they actually won the trial. But they lost in the court of public opinion because... American society, even by 1925, had shifted so far towards modernism that they resented the Bible-believing Christians holding back a progressive way of thinking about science. 
So fundamentalism continued to be sidelined to the margins of American society. So in the 1920s and 30s, we lost control of the mainline denominations, Bible-believing Christians. It's, it's just bizarre, isn't it? It's like Christian denominations that don't believe the Bible anymore. And all of the Bible-believing Christians left. And they left in keeping with the principles of 2 Corinthians 6, come out and be separate. And they started new denominations. They started new schools. So for example, in 1908, we have the Bible Institute of Los Angeles started in LA. That's Biola. In 1927, a fundamentalist seminary called Los Angeles Baptist Seminary was started. And it was started by a new denomination called the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches, the GARBC. And eventually that seminary starts a college, which becomes LA Baptist College. They move up to Placerita Canyon. And in 1985, it becomes the Master's College. Uh, Biola University starts a seminary. Well, it was just Biola Bible Institute of Los Angeles for a long time. They start a seminary called Talbot Theological Seminary, which starts an extension campus here, which becomes the Master's Seminary. So our heritage here is rooted in this Uh, these events that were taking place in the 20th century. Um, The fundamentalists begin new schools, new denominations. Many of them don't want to be associated with a denomination at all anymore because they saw how the denominations went liberal and took all of their assets and all of their people with them. And so you have in America the birth of the independent church movement as well which is why Grace Community Church, for example, is non-denominational. That's something that prior to the 20th century would have been very unusual. It's very normal now because denominations lost the trust of Bible-believing Christians, and they're saying, we don't want to be associated with a group that could go liberal at any moment. So just a little bit of how all of this history connects with us. Uh, So new denominations, new institutions, new publishing companies are all started because the mainline denominations have all been co-opted by people who call themselves Christians but don't believe the Bible. That brings us to the rise of what's called new evangelicalism. In the 1940s, there was a group of young fundamentalist leaders who were concerned that fundamentalism had gained a reputation of being too combative and of being somewhat anti-intellectual. And so they wanted to start a new movement, sort of a friendlier form of fundamentalism. And you, you have to admit that fundamentalism, even if you hear that term, it has a bit of a negative connotation associated with it. And so in 1942, these leaders got together in St. Louis and they formed a new organization called the National Association of Evangelicals for United Action. They later dropped the end of that and just called it the National Association of Evangelicals. And they decided they were going to start a new seminary. And they started a seminary called Fuller Theological Seminary. Fuller was the flagship school of new evangelicalism. And uh, the sort of the, the most well-known spokesman for new evangelicalism was an evangelist named Billy Graham, who held crusades, evangelistic crusades. And of course, you guys are familiar with the name Billy Graham. And then the uh, most well-known publication associated with this new movement was a magazine called Christianity Today. And some of you are familiar with Christianity Today. So new evangelicalism or neo-evangelicalism is a movement that started in the 1940s and 50s. And it essentially said, we're going to hold to all of the things that the fundamentalists believe, but we want to do so in a way that's going to have more influence in society. Part of that influence they sought to gain through political means. And so in the 1970s and 80s, Evangelicalism, it sort of dropped the neo or the new adjective. Evangelicalism became very engaged in politics through things like the moral majority. And the the result is that today people are 
largely associate evangelicalism with a political movement, even though historically evangelicalism is not that. Um, so all of that kind of brings us to the present. And I realize we went through that very, very quickly. But when we think about the term evangelical, uh, historically, as we've seen throughout our study of this material, evangelical comes from the Greek word euangelion that means gospel. And that is who we are to be even though the modern American evangelical movement has largely lost the distinctive meaning of being about the gospel, it's become more about being about all sorts of other things. Okay, so I want to tie this all together just by talking about how do we stand firm in this generation. We have five minutes left, and we'll use all five to... Uh, to do that. I want to come back to our three pillars. What I've tried to explain today, doing it in very rapid fashion, is I've tried to explain why things today are the way they are. Why is American society so wrapped up in science and reason and the pursuit of its own happiness Uh, Why does that consume people in Western society? The answer is because of the shift that took place during the Enlightenment. Ultimately, the answer is because that's how sin works. Sin tries to get rid of God and sin wants to pursue its own pleasures. But in terms of a philosophical construct, all of that took place in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries during the Enlightenment. The result of that has been that... In general, Western society, the elite, the academic elite, the intellectuals of Western society have attacked the Bible in an effort to undermine what Scripture teaches. And as those who believe the Bible, embrace the Bible, and embrace the God of the Bible, we must stand firm on the conviction that the word of God is our authority. It is our starting point and it is our final court of appeal. And so when we think about science and reason and the pursuit of happiness and religious tradition and all those other categories, we subject those things to what the word of God teaches. It is right to contend earnestly for the faith as Jude says, and to do that in fighting for these convictions, starting with the word of God as our authority. And then secondly, if we are to be true to the label evangelical, we must proclaim the true gospel and not get so distracted in all of the other things that modern evangelicalism is distracted by. Today, even now, There's a massive assault from those who are championing social justice to redefine what it means to be evangelical. And listen, as Bible-believing Christians, we want to see justice, but we want to define justice biblically and not let the culture define it for us. And so when we stand for the true gospel, we're being true to what Christianity really is. And then thirdly, we want to do all of this as an act of worship to the Lord. And so it's not about trying to glorify ourselves or pursue our own happiness. It is about seeking to glorify God and to find our satisfaction in him. This is what it means to be evangelical More importantly, this is what it means to be Christian. And when we allow these convictions to take root in our heart, then we have the courage to stand firm no matter what assault the culture may bring against us. And what I love about studying church history is 
just to remember the reality that church history isn't over, right? Sometimes we think of it as only the stuff that's happened in the past, but the reality is that we also are living in church history. Church history extends until the Lord Jesus returns. And until he comes, we are part of the history of the church. So the question is, will we be found faithful in this generation to stand firm for these convictions so that we might entrust this truth, having guarded it carefully, to those who come after us? All right, well, there's probably more that should be said, but the clock tells me I'm done. So let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, which is true. John 17, 17, Jesus himself said, your word is truth. And we know that it is your word that sanctifies us. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would continue to sanctify us through your truth. And as we allow the truth of your word to gain control of our hearts, Our prayer is that we would stand firm in the gospel, even as Ephesians 6 says that we would stand having shod our feet with the gospel of peace and having put on the belt of truth and taking up the shield of faith and putting on the helmet of the hope of salvation and then using the sword of the spirit, which is your word. May we stand firm against the assaults of the evil one. Lord, we often think of that passage in Ephesians 6 in response to temptation. But often, Lord, we, we apply it, we, we must apply it in the face of worldviews that would seek to assault a worldview that honors you and that actually accords with reality. You have told us what is true in your word, may we hold fast to it and never allow ourselves to give credence to the claims of a society that would seek to undermine the truth by undermining your word. Father, we look forward to the opportunity to hear your word preached by our pastor in the hour to come. And so ready our hearts to submit to your truth. We pray this in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.